Welcome to Nightline Africa. We are coming to you live from the English to Africa service of the Voice of America. Thanks for joining us. I'm Peter Clote in Washington, D.C. I'm calling members of the ANC to vote for MK. I'm not going to vote for the ANC. I'm going to vote for MK. And I'm calling... ANC members to vote for me. Former South African President Jacob Zuma announces support for a new political party. There are rumors that the election might not take place on the 20th, but however, information from CENI still holds that the election will take place on the 20th. So all fingers are crossed, and I should say about 80% sure that the elections are going to take place. Campaigning officially ends in the DRC on Monday, ahead of Wednesday's general election. There was a lot of secrecy in the deal because they requested for documentation from the Ministry of Finance, and the Ministry of Finance cannot produce the documentation. Dr. Samuel Kamai is no longer the, the Minister of, of, of Finance, so he cannot walk in there, go into the archives, and start pulling out documentation. And the lawyer of former presidential candidate Samura Kamara petitions the Sierra Leone Supreme Court to set aside a lower court's ruling. Those stories and more coming up on Nightline Africa. Former South African President Jacob Zuma has announced a new political party called Umkonto Wesizwe, meaning the Spear of the Nation. Zuma has been a member of the ruling African National Congress since he was 17, says his party is already registered to contest next year's elections for the UAE. Tusa Kumalo reports from Johannesburg, South Africa. Unveiling his new party, Umkonto Wesizwe, MK, Spear of the Nation, Former President Jacob Zuma accused current ANC President Cyril Ramaphosa of being a proxy and not a true leader of the ANC. Zuma, whose unveiling speech was read by his daughter Tutuzile Zuma because he was not feeling so well, said under President Ramaphosa and his leadership, the ANC has become arrogant towards its members and treats them with disrespect. Zuma also accused the ANC of presiding over power cuts, poverty, crime, and many other ills in the society. Asked by the media if he was resigning from the ANC, Zuma said he will remain a member but will vote for his new party, the MK. Zuma was, however, clear that his party, which carries the name of the ANC's former Liberation Army, is a different party and will take part in the coming elections. I'm calling members of the ANC to vote for MK. I'm not going to vote for the ANC. I'm going to vote for MK. And I'm calling ANC members to vote for me, MK, so that we have a majority to change this country. Zakele Sitole, 
a former liberation fighter in the Umkondo Sizwe Army of the ANC, declared his full support for Zuma's new party. We are not lost. A person who understands the difficulties of our people's lives, we can never claim freedom without economical freedom. Never. ANC member Shantankosi also pledged to vote for the new party, saying it is the only way to save the country from poverty, unemployment and inequality. I love the ANC and I will always love the ANC party. It's for the change. The ANC has not yet responded to the formation of Zuma's new party and his insistence that he remains a member of the ANC. However, speaking about the new party before it was known that President Zuma is behind its formation, ANC Secretary General Figile Mbalula had said they will go to court to stop the party from using a name that belongs to the ANC's former Liberation Army. Political analyst Ntigelelo Breakfast says Zuma's messaging is likely to confuse voters. I find that very contradictory. It's a paradox because on the one hand he says that he will die a member of the ANC. If you are unhappy with the party, why don't walk out? Others are cautioning that Zuma's new movement could deal a blow to the ANC's chances of winning the next year's elections, considering the amount of support he still commands in Wazulu Natal province, which is the ANC's biggest support base. However, some say his corruption charges will scare away many from joining his party. For VOA News, I am Tuso Kumalo in Johannesburg. Still in South Africa, a researcher at the University of Free State says the decision of former President Jacob Zuma not to support the ruling ANC in next year's elections is a big blow to the governing party. Harlan Cloetti says Zuma's announcement comes as the African National Congress is losing support across the country in the coming elections. For analysis, I reach Harlan Cloete in Johannesburg, South Africa. Look, it comes as a bit of a surprise. It has never been, it has been a long time for Jacob Zuma being at loggerheads with the president of the ANC. If you take a couple of 10 years back or so, when Thabo Mbeke also did not campaign for the ANC, he was not as vocal of it. You remember then the former president was linked to the formation of COPE, but he actively did not campaign for the ANC then. So this one comes as a bit of a surprise, especially for KZN where the ANC is at, at a very difficult space, losing support to the ISP if you look at the last local government election. So Jacob Zuma coming out so strongly saying that he will not be campaigning for the ANC uh, is a big blow to the ANC because he still, he, he still has support, considerable support, in the KwaZulu-Natal province. But Doc, some people are suggesting that this could also be a political suicide for Jacob Zuma. Is this how you see it, or do you see the ANC taking a step further by expelling him from the party? I think that is on the cards. You know, uh, Jacob Zuma is well advanced in his years. He's a senior, he's a veteran in the party. He, uh, In terms of political suicide, I'm not quite sure if that's the correct word. I think he's standing in the ANC. You know, the ANC of today is not the ANC that was 20, 25 years ago. I think the ANC has struggled as a governing party, 
to come to terms with the new material conditions and, uh, and the demands of society. And so the ANC, by its own admission, has have failed. And I can, I can only use the National Development Plan as a yardstick. If you look, the National Development Plan was published late November, and that report concluded that there's a complete, instead of a, a capable state, we have a corrupt state. And so the ANC, it was a frank admission by the government that it has failed in its economic policies and the educational policies to deliver the promise of 1994. So uh, this move, I think, will lead to the further losing the support for the ANC, especially in KZN. President Ramaphosa has dismissed recent uh, surveys that show that the ANC is losing support across South Africa. Will this compound the problem for the ANC? I think all political parties go into an election expecting to win outright. I think no political party would want to uh, go in saying, you know, we are preparing for a coalition. So I think that is the political confidence of, of Ramaphosa to say. It is expected of him to say, you go into the fight, into the ring to win. And so all indications are, if you look at the polls, if you look at the mood in society, if you look at load shedding, all these, and, and, it's, and it's always difficult for a government you know, going into election because it is judged by its current performance. The opposition not being in government uh, can easily make pronouncements because they have not yet governed. But if you look at the ANC's governance track record in South Africa, it has been on a downward trajectory for the last decade or so. What do you think are the prospects of the opposition uniting with the candidate? Because I understand there were talks for an alliance. I think that the ANC, I think people must not be naive and be, and be fooled. The ANC will still be the majority party. It may not get 50%, but it will still take a, a majority share of the vote. So it continues to be popular. It continues to, to talk left. Uh, the opposition parties, I think, you know, what we've seen interesting is that the EFF, now Carl Nias, who has been expelled from the ANC previously, yeah, he formed an organizational radical uh, economic transformation, ARETA. Uh, they've now joined forces with the EFF. And so I think the opposition parties, I'm on record as saying, you know, is that the two biggest losers uh, should form a coalition in terms of stability. Uh, uh, but I'm not quite sure if the opposition parties would want to save the ANC of that. So I think we may have, uh, minority coalitions, we have, we may have, remember we've got nine provinces. And so all but in the Western Cape, I think the, the DA will probably win outright there again, although they may lose a little bit of support. Uh, but it will be an interesting, it's going to be an interesting mix of coalitions at the provincial level. And so I think we, we need to prepare ourselves for, for coalition governance. Uh, as a whole society, because our electoral system in South Africa is designed in that way. Harlan Cloyte is a researcher at the University of Free State. He spoke with me from Johannesburg, South Africa. In the DRC, campaigning officially ends on Monday ahead of Wednesday's general election. 
According to the Electoral Commission or CNE, there would be no campaigning on Tuesday, the eve of the polls, to allow prospective voters to decide on who to vote for. Incumbent President Felix Chisekedi faces stiff competition from businessman Moise Katumbi and Martin Fayulu, who claimed he won the last presidential contest. Analysts say the failure of the opposition to choose a single candidate paves the way for the president to win re-election. For the latest developments about the campaigns, I reached Mike Injang. He is a long-term poll observer monitoring the vote. We have been observing the training process. We have visited most of the, if not all of the Seni regional offices. We saw the training process and the electoral materials that have been received and the DVE, that's the voting machines, the barriers have been charged and uh, they also have backups. So for now, we've gone to almost all the antennas and I think the non-sensitive materials are already in place and also the SEPs, that is the Secretary Electoral Provincial, have been provided with some four by four vehicles to enable them or facilitate their movement and distribution of the materials. They are in the last phase of training as well, and all sensitive materials are still, some are still waiting for the non-sensitive materials. I cannot say for sure if they have received the sensitive materials. Has the Electoral Commission or CNE given you the assurance or the people of Congo assurance that they will be ready for Wednesday's elections? There are rumors that the election might not take place on the 20th, but however, Information from CENI still holds that the election will take place on the 20th. So all fingers are crossed, and I should say about 80% sure that the elections are going to take place. You've been also monitoring the presidential candidates as they campaign. What are the two major takeaways that you've observed so far? Yeah, I think the presidential campaign is... uh, really strong and the incumbent was in his uh, hometown last week he trailed the population because he landed at the airport and they had this march of about three kilometers his convoy they were just following him behind and the crowd of more than i think it should be more than thirty thousand people walking with him from the airport right to where he was going to deliver his main campaign speech and right there he promised or encouraged the youth to go to school promise uh, jobs free primary and secondary education and also free antenatal and delivery for pregnant women so everybody was just like excited and most people are still believing that he might turn out to be the winner but for now you can never read the mind of voters what about the other candidates? The other candidates, it all depends on their region. Like I said last time, most of the way the campaigns are going here, people don't really understand what they want. So they go by tribal lines. So each person or each candidate has a stronghold in his or her own fears. Mm. So what has been the responses Uh, so far from the population that you have observed, then how enthusiastic are they to vote? Yes, again, it's hard to read the mind of the population or the mind of voters because the same crowd that we turn out 
to support one candidate is the same crowd that will turn out to support the opponent. But people are really enthusiastic. They are going to the Senate office to collect their duplicata for those who misplace their voters' card. And Senate is doing everything possible to make sure everybody has that. I also came across an article where they are saying, even if you don't have your voters card insofar as you are registered, you are going to vote. I think that one trailed me a lot because kind of happy that people are going to have the opportunity to vote even if they don't have their voters card. So I don't know how they are going to be identified. Mm. The population are enthusiastic waiting for that D-Day, the 20th. Mike Injang is a long-term poll observer monitoring the election in the DRC. He spoke with me from the Congolese capital, Kinshasa, in Dubai. The COP28 conference on climate change ended last week with a call to phase out fossil fuels. But some say the conclusion of the summit yielded few concrete results on how countries are expected to do that and to address the impact of climate change happening worldwide. In an exclusive interview, I spoke to Patricia Scotland, the Secretary General of the Commonwealth of Nations, about COP28 and what she says are a lack of climate resilience opportunities and funds for countries already dealing with the effect of a rapidly heating world. Here is the conclusion of the conversation. <laughs> well, uh, I, I'm not cutting you short, but do you think there's sufficient focus on ocean resilience at COP? I think uh, no, although you will know that more than half of the uh, events we did was all on oceans. Why? Because we depend on oceans. We are a blue commonwealth. 49 member countries have a coastline. Every second breath we take as human beings come from our ocean. 71% of our world is blue. And yet we have, what, 0.56% um, of all philanthropic money goes to oceans. We have less than 2% of all the money to SDGs going to oceans, less than 1%. And, and some of it overall, the spending is 0.1%. This is extraordinary. Because if we don't concentrate on our oceans, if we don't save our oceans, we can't save ourselves. And so we have been making a big push, as you know, on the Blue Charter, creating um, uh, uh, boot camps. We've got simulation labs. We've got incubators because people aren't usually giving governments money to experiment with some of the new innovative, creative opportunities. So we in the Commonwealth have created a Blue Charter incubator to give, yes, small sums of money, but to governments so they can trial things, they can test things to see if they work. We know that not all of them will work, but we believe that enough of them will work to make a huge difference. Before you go, I know you have to run, Madam Secretary-General, but what is your major takeaway of this? I think that there is an understanding now that it will take all of us and that business has a pivotal role to play. I think we're almost getting to the tipping point where people are understanding that green energy absolutely is the future 
and it will be cheaper, better and easier. But we have such a fight on our hands to get an understanding and a action plan in relation to how we transit out of fossil fuels. And you'll know we've done a lot of work in our Commonwealth because we have fossil fuel producers and fossil fuel consumers. If you look at the, the, the Caribbean, the majority of the assets are dependent on fossil fuel. So we say we have to have a just transition out of fossil fuels into green energy. But we accept that has to take time and there has to be stages. But I think we have to have a sense of urgency that we are going to transit out and we've got to try and get together to have a timeline by when that's going to happen. But we have to be fair, fair to those whose economy is dependent on fossil fuels, fair to those whose lives in other countries are still dependent on fossil fuel consumption, but fair to our world, because if we want this planet to survive, we're going to have to change, and we have to change fast. Patricia Scotland is the Secretary General of the Commonwealth of Nations. She spoke with me from Dubai, United Arab Emirates. In Sierra Leone, the loyal former presidential candidate Samura Kamara has petitioned the Supreme Court to set aside a ruling by the Court of Appeal, which accused the opposition leader of graft. In its ruling, the lower court ordered the arrest of Kamara to be handed over to the Anti-Corruption Commission to investigate him for his role in what prosecutors call shady and secret deals. It also ordered the opposition leader to pay over $727,000. But attorney Adi McCauley contends that the ruling is a travesty of justice, adding that it appears to be politically motivated. He tells me that the petition to the Supreme Court is aimed at seeking justice for his client. Firstly, my reaction is that the judgment of the Court of Appeal delivered on the 7th, in which the appeal of Dr. Samura Kamara was dismissed, is shocking. Shocking because the evidence presented before the court is very much at variance with the conclusion of the court. And secondly, I am flabbergasted that the Court of Appeal has ordered the arrest of Dr. Samura Kamara on the conclusion of a civil matter in which his appeal has been dismissed. This is a novelty, and I am shocked it happened because other appellants who have also lost their COI appeals in the Court of Appeal have never been, have never been ordered to be arrested. This is the first. And we are shocked. Some people are suggesting that why should it be a shocking to you when uh, grave injustice or financial malfeasance or wrongdoing has been done to the state of Sierra Leone, which is considered a poor country. This is an issue which the Anti-Corruption Commission has investigated two years ago and closed it because there was no issue there. So I am surprised that that particular outcome of the investigation was not translated or transmitted to the court for it to know that that issue was no longer an issue. Or come to speak of it, um, there is no evidence before the court of the commission that Dr. Samua Kamara misappropriated money belonging to the government of Sierra Leone or either caused loss to the government of Sierra Leone. There were shares held 
by the government of Sierra Leone in Sierra Rutel Holding Limited, which were liquidated. And those money amounting to about 13 point something million, 12 million of which was paid to the government bank account at the, go- at, at the Bank of Sierra Leone. And the remaining $727,000 was withheld by Sierra Rutel Limited because the very government of Sierra Leone in 1992, I believe, during the NPRC government of which President Bill was part of, owed $727,000 to Sierra Rutel. So they said, well, if we have to give you 13 point something million dollars, we are going to do a set of that is we deduct what you owe us and we pay you the balance. And that was what happened. The, the allegation, Mr. Macaulay, is that he took that decision on the blind side of the government. And that raised a lot of suspicions, they say. Your response to no, that? No, no, it, 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 it isn't the case at all. In fact, what the Commission of Inquiry concluded that there was a lot of secrecy in the deal because they requested for, gov- for, for documentation from the Ministry of Finance and the Ministry of Finance cannot produce the documentation. Dr. Samuel Kamai is no longer the, the Minister of, of Finance, so he cannot walk in there, go into the archives and start pulling out documentation. But what, he, what, what was proved was that money, there was an agreement in which the Tijan Kaba government signed in 2002 in 2004, and in 2012, the Anisbaikuma government signed an agreement to dispose of the shares. And let me just let you in into this. The agreement which Chijan Kaba signed in 2002 and 2004 has a clause there that says that if the government of Sierra at any point wishes to dispose of the shares it is holding in Sierra Rutal Limited, in Sierra Rutal Holding Limited, then the Sierra Rutal Holding Limited should have first right of refusal. So what the Ministry of Finance under Dr. Samuel did was just to follow the agreement and implement the agreement which the Tijan Kaba government signed. Well, supporters of the government have denied um, that this is a politically motivated plan against him, but... What are the legal remedies left for you to pursue? Yes, of course, there are legal remedies, and that is appealing to the Supreme Court. I have filed in the Supreme Court an appeal, appealing the decision of the Court of Appeal. And further, I have also filed yesterday a motion of stay of execution to stay the orders of the Court of Appeal. That is to say that Dr. Samuel Kamar should not be arrested. Dr. Samuel Kamar should not be forced to pay the $727,000 pending the hearing and determination of the appeal that we have filed in the Supreme Court. Adi Macaulay is the lawyer of former presidential candidate Samura Kamara. He spoke with me from the Sierra Union capital, Freetown. In Senegal, the founder of a think tank called the Africa Jump Center is calling for dialogue between President Macky Sall and a detained presidential aspirant Usmani Sonko. Alion Tin B says it is a major way to resolve what he calls a political problem in Senegal. He warned of increased tension which could spiral into violence if Sonko is barred from contesting in the presidential elections next year. His remarks come after a court in the capital Dakar ordered that Sonko be reinstated as a presidential candidate. Legal analysts say the Constitutional Court is the only institution that can determine the eligibility of Sonko to run as a candidate in the elections. For more about the call for dialogue, I reach Alion Team B. In Senegal, the problem is a political problem. Even we have uh, our judicial mechanisms that are working, it's very good. But I think that we have to find a political 
solution by dialogue between uh, Usman Sonko and Makisal. I think that we need it very quickly before the election because we need to see how to find all the problems we have in this election. We have a lot of problems and I think that by dialoguing, by rebuilding confidence, because confidence is necessary in election to have transparent election, to have inclusive election and credible election. I think we need now to dialogue after the decision of the judiciary. It is necessary, it is good, but I think that we need a dialogue to, you know, bring confidence in our uh, democratic process and our electoral process. Alion, how confident are you that this call for dialogue will even happen, especially with this alleged tension between some officials of the government and the opposition party led by Osman Sonko. I can't tell you that the Senegalese opinion is supporting the idea of dialogue. And I have, uh, you know, discussed with some leaders of the opposition and they are okay for the dialogue. And I think that in the ruling party, they are listening, listening to my proposition and they are interested to my proposal. The court in Dakar just ruled that Osmar Sonko should be. Others are saying that if he is not included in the elections, it will increase tension and violence. Is this a true reflection of what some Senegalese see? I think that uh, the decision of uh, the tribunal of Dakar is very well appreciated by all Senegalese goes, it can bring peace in the, process, in the electoral process. And I think that if we have a sort of, uh, you know, consent, national consent in the opinion, I think everybody, even the constitutional court, can follow and uh, strengthen the peace and the consent, uh, the national consent about, uh, you know, an inclusive election. An inclusive election means that Usman Soko will run and all the, uh, you know, militants and all the electorate of Isban Sonko will be represented. And it is very important for the national unity, it's very important for the social, uh, you know, harmony in Senegal. It is very important. How do you convince the hardliners in the government or the ruling party and the hardliners in the Osman Sonko camp that dialogue is the best way forward? You know, we are in a turning point and everybody, you know, uh, is very conscious that we are in a turning point and for uh, consolidating our democracy and our national ar harmony we need to dialogue and i think that this uh, idea is working and uh, is being you know accepted by uh, by the senegalese opinion i'm telling you because every every day every time i make uh, you know uh, uh, a post to express my opinion about dialogue and i I, I see that he is, it is very appreciated because many other, you know, uh, uh, press, uh, digital press are, uh, and the Senegalese press is talking about all these ideas I'm uh, uh, making in my post. It is important and it is uh, something that is, you know, very, very interesting for me. Alion Tin B is the founder of a think tank called the Africa Jones Center. He spoke with me from the Senegalese capital, Dakar. 
On this weekend's Issues in the News, we'll speak with a mother whose 19-year-old daughter is still being held by Hamas as families of the hostages demand more efforts to get them out. Israel vows to continue fighting and a deep dive into what that means for civilians struggling to survive. Also, Ukraine moves a step closer to joining the EU but hits another pitfall in military aid. Listen this weekend on VOA's Issues in the News. In Uganda, the National Teachers Union is warning that the country will face a shortage of teachers in 2025. Gilbert Baguma, the group's general secretary, also says work overload and stress are having a negative impact on the health of teachers. His remarks come after the teachers' group says over 1,000 have died in the last two years. It also says poor living conditions are also to blame for the poor health of teachers. For more information, I reach Philbert Baguma. Yeah, it's true. We have uh, lost a number of teachers. And when you trace the the cause of death, there are stress-related factors. And these factors range from the working and living conditions of teachers. Of course, looking at what teachers earn and the current economic situation, the teachers find it hard to fend for their families and their dependents, and as a result, the pressures become too much. Notwithstanding the pressure at work, because we have a limited number of teachers, which makes it difficult for teachers because they have to manage very large classes. And these classes, you have to manage it from morning to evening. And therefore, the the issues of the workplace coupled with issues at home make it very difficult. And therefore, there is a lot of stress, a lot of burnout on the teacher's side. And it was made worse when government came up to divide the teachers according to the subjects they teach. Now the school environment is very hostile. Some teachers are totally demoralized, while others are a little bit excited and motivated. Uh, your organization is saying that Uganda risks facing a shortage of teachers by 2025. Is this a true reflection of what is happening among your teachers? Because some people are expressing doubt. Obviously, whoever expresses the doubt should come for records because the records are available. And of course, where there is a demoralized staff, it simply means young students are not attracted to the teaching profession. Those who are there because of the law morale are also finding it difficult to continue, and therefore they are leaving the profession. Critics of yours are saying that teachers knew what they were getting themselves into before going into the profession, and that the adage that their reward is in heaven was attractive enough for them, and that they are paid at least $125 per month better than other professions. Your response to that? Does that mean that those who say teachers benefit and reward is in heaven do not know where heaven is and they don't yearn to go to heaven the teachers know what they join as a profession but that does not stop them from demanding to have better welfare because the the economic environment becomes hostile. And when it is hostile, definitely it is part of their right to demand for what they think can take them through the hard times. Recently, President Museveni called on the education ministry to work with your organization to come up with a better way to address these improved conditions that you have been requesting about. 
what has been the status so far and what, how are things moving on regarding that? Well, as we have done our part and we are waiting for the Ministry of Education and Sports and other relevant line ministries to come up with a strategy because the longer the situation takes, the worse the situation becomes. And therefore, for us to look at the innocent Ugandan children, their education and their future, we need to see deliberate effort by government to address the situation. Otherwise, we cannot think of quality education when the teacher issues are, are, are in this mood. Remember, teachers' conditions mean learners' conditions. If the teachers' conditions are horrible, then the learners won't benefit from the teachers, and they won't get what we expect them to get from the teaching-learning process. Gilbert Baguma is the General Secretary of Uganda National Teachers' Union. He spoke with me from the capital, Kampala. This is the Voice of America, and you are listening to Nightland Africa. I'm your host, Peter Clote, in Washington. Coming up in the second half of Nightland Africa, a commentary by Dr. James Jonah, former UN Undersecretary General for Political Affairs and Music from our collection. But first. Now let's take a closer look at Africa, the problems, the prospect in time of conflict, in time of peace. Here's one man's point of view with Dr. James Jonah, former UN Undersecretary General for Political Affairs. Hello, Dr. Jonah. Good evening, Africa. This is a solemn period for the global community because we are at a peril point in the conduct of international relations. When the United Nations was established in 1945, the consensus opinion of the organization was that the last point for preserving humanity. Yet today, we see a general malaise where people are now declaring loud and clearly that the United Nations has failed. Of course, this is due to the fact that while a terrible conflict is raging in Gaza, the institutions have failed. The Security Council has failed to be united to speak with one voice to stop the outrage in Gaza. The General Assembly rose to the occasion and passed code resolution based on the request of the Secretary General who raised Article 99. And yet, nothing has happened. Israel made it very clear in the Security Council and in the General Assembly that it would not comply with any resolutions from the United Nations or any pressure from the international community. This is why we are now emerging into a lawless and ruthless society where the major powers take care of themselves, where the small and poor are told to just obey and keep silent. We know, of course, that the United States government, which had used the veto on a number of occasions in the last few weeks, 
agreed with the view of the Israeli government that Abbas should no longer be allowed to play a major role, not only in Gaza, but in the Middle East. And they, to some extent, are supporting Netanyahu's view that Hamas will be abolished. But how can all this be compared with what people call a genocide in Gaza? How can the international community, if there is anyone, tolerate a siege in the 21st century? Well, for 70 days, Palestinians in Gaza at a stage of starvation and the death toll have reached 19,000 in just 70 days. And also intolerable is that we have large number of children and babies dying. It is imaginable that for 70 days the world community have tolerated thousands of bodies under rubble and no attempt has been made to remove the rubbles and give dignity to those who have died. For many in the world, the people they have demonstrated that they are concerned, and yet nothing happens. For Africans, you are witnessing a situation where in the lawless and ruthless world, the African continent will be the most vulnerable. Africans have not made arrangements to protect themselves. Just think of it. It was only in 1884-85 that European powers sat in a conference room in Berlin with a map of Africa where they discussed how they could partition and share the continent with no representative of Africa at the table. If this lawless and ruthless force continues, then Africans should accept or expect worse. This is why it is time for the African Union to consider calling an emergency summit of the African Union to discuss this situation. First of all, the African continent must pronounce itself on the need for humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. We see that the situation is getting in the world there People have expressed outrage only when the kin and king, kin are involved. Africa should make its voice known. Yes, African states have voted with a majority calling for ceasefire in the United Nations. But that's not enough. Secondly, the Africans must discuss how best to make arrangements to protect themselves in such a lawless and ruthless world. They may also try to revive the issue of non-alignment so they can have strong support because there is no sign that many in the world community who have power care one moment for those suffering in Gaza. Even the journalists, because the Israeli government have made it difficult for international journalists to go to Gaza to shine a light on the disaster going there, you have had 90, 90 journalists, mostly Palestinians, died just in 60 days. This is disgraceful. So Africans must consult quickly and see how much contribution they can make in trying to avert this coming outrage. I thank you. That was one man's point of view, a commentary by Dr. James Jonah, former UN Under Secretary General for Political Affairs. Yeah. It's up to me. 
And it's Sunday on Nightland Africa. This is the time we get to relax and reflect. A flashback with music from our collection. Snow is glistening, a beautiful sight. We're happy tonight, walking. Gone away is the bluebird, but here to stay is the bluebird. He sings a love song as we go along. Walking in the meadow, we can build a snowman and pretend that he is Parson Brown. He'll say, I am and we'll say, No man, but you can do the job for me all in town. Later on, we'll conspire as we sit by the fire to face on a that we may walk in. is frightful, but the fire is so delightful, and since we've no place to go, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow, it doesn't show signs of stopping, and I've brought some corn for popping, the lights are turned way down low, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow, when we finally kiss goodnight, how I'll hate going out in the storm. But if you really hold me tight, all the way home I'll be warm. The fire is slowly dying, and my dear, we're still goodbying. But as long as you love me so, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Finally kiss goodnight How I'll hate going out in the storm But if you really hold me tight All the way home I'll be warm Oh, the weather outside is frightful For the fire is so delightful And since we've no place to go Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow It doesn't show signs of stopping And I brought some corn for popping The lights are turned way down low Let it snow, let it snow, let it snow When we finally kiss goodnight How I'll hate going out in a storm But if you All the way home I'll be warm The fire is slowly dying 
crying And my dear, we're still goodbying But as long as you love me so Let it snow, let it snow Let it snow
Chestnuts roasting on an open fire Jack Frost nipping at your nose Yuletide carols being sung by choir And folks dressed up like Eskimos Everybody knows a turkey some mistletoe can help to make the season bright and that was our Sunday music spot hope you enjoy the music from Nightland Africa here at the English to Africa service of the Voice of America in Washington they know that Santa's on his way Lots of toys and goodies on Nightline Africa comes to you from the English to Africa service of the Voice of America. Hope you enjoy the program tonight. As you know by now, we are now on Saturdays and Sundays at 16 and 18 hours UTC. From the Nightline Africa team, including producer Nicole Peters and engineer Justin Thwaites, we say thanks for joining us. And remember, as the elders say, white corn paste comes out of the black pot. I'm your host, Peter Clote in Washington. Good evening, Africa. Although it's been said many times, many ways, Merry Christmas.